I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we'll be reading Exodus chapters 30 through 32. We've been looking at, in the passages preceding this one, the specifications for the tabernacle and the priest's clothing. Now we'll be looking at the altar of incense, beginning with chapter 30, verse 1. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shittim wood, thou shalt make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and four squares shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof, the horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof. And thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it, by the two corners thereof, upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it. And they shall be for the places for the staves to bear it withal. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. And Aaron shall burn incense thereon, sweet incense, every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Notice that this altar of incense was about 18 inches square, that's one cubit on the top. It had one purpose, and that purpose was to burn incense unto the Lord. It was placed immediately outside the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. A special blend of incense that we'll be talking about in a few moments uh, was burned on it throughout the morning and the evening. The Levites carried it with poles through the rings, just like they did the Ark of the Covenant and the brazen altar. The location directly in front of the curtain that led to the Holy of Holies was strategic. Smoke from this altar found its way into the Holy of Holies. One special activity each year on the Day of Atonement involved using coals from this altar of incense, we see it in Leviticus chapter 16, for the purpose of filling a censer for use directly inside the veil. It apparently was to create smoke that would prevent a clear visual image on the part of the high priest of the Ark of the Covenant. We see a tax in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then they shall give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give, every one that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty geras. And half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. 
Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when they give an offering unto the Lord, to make an atonement for your souls. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord, to make an atonement for your souls. We saw God's insistence in the building of the tabernacle that all the donations be voluntary, but that's not the case here. This appears to be a flat tax on all adult males, and that's for the purpose of supporting the service of the tabernacle, along with account to be done at the same time, a census, so to speak. All the adult men, 20 years old and older, would be responsible for this donation. Rich or poor, everybody paid the same amount for the continuing service of the tabernacle. This tax amounted to about one-fifth of an ounce of silver. That was then used in Exodus chapter 38, which we'll see later, to make the sockets, hooks, and rods. Incidentally, the one-fifth of an ounce of silver would have been a little more than lunch money for even the poor person. However, with the contribution from all the adult men, everyone had a financial stake in the building of the tabernacle. We also see this tax collected in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 32, when the exiles returned to their land. Moreover, this temple-slash-tabernacle tax becomes an issue during the ministry of Jesus when we get over to Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. Tax and census, as specified here, would have exempted the Levites since they were never part of the count of 20-year-old uh, males and older. As a matter of fact, this tax was collected in order to support the work of those Levites. Then we come to the description of the labor in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 21. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it in between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Now this labor doesn't seem to be very large. Although we don't have any dimensions specified here, it was made of brass. Actually, it was the brass taken from the mirrors of the women. Polished brass was the primary means of seeing one's reflection back then. This labor was placed just outside the tent door. The priest had to wash up their hands and their feet before entering, and it says in verse 21 that they die not. Whoa, maybe cleanliness really is next to godliness. That's an old-time extra-scriptural saying, but I like it. And just as we pointed out in Exodus chapter 28, their feet were uncovered, no shoes, after they washed them at the labor. Then we have the anointing of the facilities and the priest specified in verses 22 to 38. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, five hundred shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even two hundred and fifty shekels, and of sweet calamus, two hundred and fifty shekels. 
and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive, and hen. And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be holy anointing oil. And thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all his vessels, and the candlestick, and his vessels, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all his vessels, and the laver, and his foot. And thou shalt sanctify them, that they may be most holy. Whatsoever toucheth them shall be holy. And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, This shall be an holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall ye make any other like it, after the composition of it, it is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Whosoever compoundeth anything like it, or whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger, shall even be cut off from his people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto these sweet spices, Stockty, and Onica, and Galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be a light weight. And thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection, after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, you shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord." Whosoever shall make like unto that, to smell thereto, shall even be cut off from his people. Here we see that God gives a specific recipe for making the anointing substance for this tabernacle in the wilderness, and then some special tabernacle perfume, all to be applied to the tabernacle furnishings. So, do you like the new tabernacle smell? Well, I wouldn't advise making your own brew of these two substances at home for your personal use, According to verses 33 and 38, look at verse 38. Whosoever shall make liken to that, to smell thereto, shall even be cut off from his people. This phrase, cut off from, is used frequently in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, for various offenses. No one can say for certain whether that means excommunicated from Israel or whether it means put to death. Sometimes the context seems to give a hint in this passage, there's no way to be certain. Either way, don't try to duplicate that tabernacle smell at your house. You'll notice that Aaron and his sons were also anointed with this very same oil in verse 30. David makes reference to this in Psalm chapter 133, verse 2, when he says, It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. In Exodus chapter 31, we see that the contract for building the tabernacle is awarded. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. 
And I, behold, I have given with him Ahaliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee, the tabernacle of the congregation, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is thereupon, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, and the table and his furniture, and the pure candlestick with all his furniture, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all his furniture, and the laver and his foot, and the clothes of service, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister in the priest's office, and the anointing oil, and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded thee, shall they do. This is her's grandson, Bezalel. He's awarded the building contract. You'll recall that her was placed in charge, along with Aaron, back in Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 to 18, when Moses ascended the mountain. Her was married to Moses' sister, Miriam. Her must be very proud of his grandson, Bezalel, who heads up this very sacred project. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 18, talks about Sabbath-keeping. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath forever, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath day of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Well, here we go on this Sabbath-keeping issue again. Don't you get the impression that this was a very important component of keeping the law of Moses? In verse 13, God says of Sabbath-keeping, It is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And then we see that cut off from phrase again in verse 14 for the violators of the Sabbath. Interestingly enough, we do see that cut off from with regard to Sabbath keeping did mean death in Numbers chapter 15 verse 35. Because there a guy was executed for not observing the Sabbath day. For those people who are convinced that the New Testament believers are required to keep the law, they really need to consider these verses and then decide what they intend to do about the Sabbath. But then there's verse 17. It says, It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. We don't keep the Sabbath as Christians because we are not the children of Israel. Maybe you see it now. The whole law of Moses was given as a covenant between God and Israel. As believers, our covenant is based upon the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The law of Moses belonged to the Hebrews. The cross, on the other hand, belongs to believers. 
Now, I've written an article entitled The Sabbath Day and Why Believers Don't Observe It. And it's located in the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or you can read it on this page of the written notes for this particular reading on this day. Now we find that infamous calf incident in Exodus chapter 32, beginning with verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we will not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool. After he had made it a molten calf, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. Well, Moses headed up to the top of the mountain way back in Exodus chapter 24, verse 15. Hey, that kind of revelation just doesn't take place overnight. So Moses was up there quite a long time. As a matter of fact, he'd been gone for nearly seven weeks, 40 days altogether. And that's according to Exodus chapter 24, verse 18. By this point in time, the Hebrews become very restless. Somebody do something. Now, secular historical sources tell us that the bull was an important symbol in ancient Egyptian life. The sun was revered as the valiant bull, and the reigning pharaoh as the bull of bulls. But far more important in this connection is the fact that the calf worship was almost universal among all the ancient Semitic peoples. So, when the Hebrews panicked, where'd they turn? Well, Aaron, of course. He and her had been left in charge. Aaron, who is Israel's future high priest, well, he's the answer man. When the people asked for a god, Aaron rose into action. Her seems to have stayed out of it. Aaron comes up with a golden calf. In retrospect, it seems like a goofy move on his part. Keep in mind, however, Aaron has had very little in the way of priesting instruction. Their cows seem to be, to some extent, sacred. When they were hungry, they still didn't eat their cows, and he knew that from time to time God did command them to sacrifice some of their cattle on an altar. They only ate them when God told them it was okay to do so. So I guess, given his background and experience, it just made sense to Aaron to make them a golden calf. Look at Aaron's comment upon completion of his masterpiece in verse 5. He says, "'Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord.'" He even uses the word Jehovah here in verse 5, but notice what he had to say in verse 4. These be thy gods, plural, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Just to be clear, his statement in verse 4 regarding thy gods simply isn't compatible with his reference to Jehovah in verse 5. Aaron at this point was undoubtedly a very confused leader. It's interesting that after Solomon's kingdom split, Jeroboam, who became the king of the northern kingdom, 
quotes these words of Aaron in verse 4 to justify his two-calf worship system established in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, when he says there, Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. That's Jeroboam quoting Aaron. Well, we see beginning with verse 7 that God tips Moses off unto what's happening there on the ground. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I will give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he had thought to do unto his people. Well, they're up on the mountain, and God tells Moses what's going on down below, with the people and the calf. God even quotes Aaron's words in verse 8 when he says, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron declared those words to the people up in verse 4. An interesting discussion takes place between God and Moses at this point. God indicates that he can make a great nation. That's to fulfill his promises to the patriarchs. He can make a great nation from the descendants of Moses alone. But Moses pleads with God for the people to have yet another chance. It's amusing to see Moses' negotiating skills here. He reminds God that the Egyptians will get big satisfaction out of the demise of the Israelites. And then he invokes the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that being Jacob. And he reminds God of that covenant. Okay, Moses, you take care of it then. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 15 to 20, Moses descends the mountain. Verse 15, And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side, and on the other side were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is the voice of them that cry for being overcome. But the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh into the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. 
And he took the calf which they had made, and burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. Well, Moses makes his trip down off the mountain with the stone tablets containing God's commandments in his hand. Look at verse 19, it says, And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh into the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. Wow! Forty days' work down the drain. Now there's an interesting punishment in verse 20. Is that the equivalent of making kids put soap in their mouths? I mean, making them drink of the ground powder from the golden calf sprinkled into the water and then forced to drink it? Wow, that's some expensive water right there. Well, a couple of other indications here make this occasion even more disgusting. In verse 25, we see that the people around the golden calf were naked. Add to that the indication of verse 6, which says the Israelites, and I quote, rose up to play. That Hebrew word there translated play in sakak. And there's the same word used in Genesis chapter 26, verse 8, to describe the activities of Isaac and Rebekah. And there it's translated sporting, where it says Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Whatever the activity was between Isaac and Rebekah, Abimelech is very certain that it's not appropriate behavior between a brother and a sister. Therefore, I think it's a valid conclusion that the word play while they were naked around the golden calf here is something more than just bingo. So, Aaron, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, let's look at it in verses 21 to 25. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we will not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for an Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Moses doesn't beat around the bush in talking with Aaron in verse 21. It says, And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? If somehow Aaron believed that he'd done the right thing, this question from Moses should have cleared that misconception up immediately. Well, how about Aaron's reply? Did you ever say the wrong thing under pressure and wish you could just take it back? I'm guessing that must be exactly the way Aaron felt after his reply in verse 24 when he said, And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Now, really, Aaron, who believes that? Just look at verse 25 to recognize the magnitude of what Aaron had done as the first in command while Moses was away. It says, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Well, the people were acting like the heathens from whom God had separated them. 
Now, we're going to see here, this turns out to be a capital offense in verses 26 to 29. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Then every man upon his son, and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. Well, the Levites step up to the plate here as the designated police force for phase one of cleaning up the camp. They slay 3,000 men by the sword. Who really knows for certain what distinguished these 3,000 men as worthy of death, while others were spared? However, obviously there was some sort of distinction. It appears that the distinction is found in Verse 26, when it says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. It looks as though the sons of Levi were a few among many who came to the side of Moses. Those who did not come to the side of Moses were slain by the Levites. In other words, it was a choice. Noted that verse 26 marks the turning point for the tribe of Levi. You recall that Levi, along with his brother Simeon, was cursed by Jacob on his deathbed in Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 through 7. It was because of their murderous act against the men of Shechem. On that occasion, they were told by Jacob, as I said on his deathbed, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. With the combination of that scattering curse by Jacob, along with their noble act here as they stand with Moses, they later become the designated tribe of priests in Israel when we get over to Numbers chapter 3. However, Jacob's words are still fulfilled inasmuch as they are scattered among the tribes of Israel without their own specific tribal inheritance when they enter Canaan under Joshua. So what do we do now? Exodus chapter 32 verse 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord, peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord, and said, O oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people into the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people, because they made the calf which Aaron made. Well, we see in these verses that the rest of the Hebrews still must pay a penalty for the sin of calf worship that they've committed. I guess they're already seeing how severely God will be dealing with the violators of the first four commandments. Moses makes a plea on behalf of his people. In analyzing these six verses, let's recap what's taken place. The Levites have slain 3,000 of the stubborn sinners. Those are the ones who did not correctly answer the question, 
Who's on the Lord's side? Moses makes an impassioned plea in verse 32 and says, Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Whoa, that's a pretty heavy plea. What is this book anyway? Well, now don't jump to conclusions here. Obviously, the 3,000 people slain by the Levites are blotted out of that book. We're talking about physical, not spiritual salvation here. Blot out here is a term which means the loss of physical life. Yes, death. It would be a spiritual impossibility for Moses to lose his spiritual life here as he makes this offer before God. He's offering his physical life to God on behalf of his Israelite kin. In other words, if you're going to kill them, just go ahead and kill me while you're at it. There are absolutely no implications of spiritual salvation in this passage. It was all about physical death. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.